Y luego muchos por tradición piensan que fue en el aposento alto donde uh, llegó el día de Pentecostés y fue bautizado la iglesia en el Espíritu Santo. Uh, that is mostly true. The upper room is the place where Jesus established the new covenant where he gave us the Lord's Supper. And uh, it is the place where Jesus spent the last night of teaching with his disciples. But the day of Pentecost actually did not occur in the upper room. It occurred in the temple. We're going to discuss that uh, as we study this. But the reason I want us to study this is because when you think about someone dying, in, uh, in this case, Jesus, uh, you always wonder what were their last words? What was on their mind? Uh, what were they thinking about? Cuando alguien muere, uh, siempre queremos saber qué estarían pensando o qué dijeron, cuáles fueron sus últimas palabras, uh, cuáles fueron sus uh, últimos pensamientos, sus deseos. We, we go to lawyers so that they can read the last will and testament. That's the final statement of a person who has died. And uh, that's important to us because I think that when we get to the point of death, what we're thinking about uh, has already been filtered, we've already filtered out the un important and the insignificant and we've gotten right down to the crystal clear realities of life and death and what really matters. Now it's sad sometimes to hear people or see families fighting around the deathbed about stuff that's insignificant like what colors will the flowers be on the casket or uh, you know foolishness like that. When you get down to the end of your life things should become real clear. Well the upper room discourse is a, a teaching of five chapters in the Bible that Jesus gave. And this is his final teaching before the cross. And so I want us to spend the next uh, few uh, meetings together uh, studying what did Jesus say before he died? What was on his heart? What was on his mind? The Upper Room Discourse, we're going to spend most of the month of April studying it, but really it happened in about Uh, five hours, the five hours prior to the night when Jesus was betrayed and the morning after Jesus would be crucified. So uh, this is what we're going to be studying together. And we're going to be looking at five chapters which are found in John's Gospel, John chapter 13 through John chapter 17. Vamos a estar estudiando lo, el discurso del aposento alto que es la última enseñanza del Señor Jesucristo antes de su muerte. Es la última enseñanza antes de la crucificación. Entonces, vamos a estar estudiando juntos el capítulo 13 hasta el capítulo 17 del Evangelio según San Juan. And I hope that what you will do is that you'll take the time throughout the month of April, between now and Easter, I pray and ask you to Take the time to read John 13 through 17. For, uh, I'm going to give you this as homework, all right? Les voy a dar esto por tarea que durante este tiempo y hasta el domingo de resurrección que usted lea estos cinco capítulos de la Biblia. You can uh, divide it up and read it daily if you like, but spend some time reading the words of Jesus prior to the cross because they pretty much sum up the most important values of the Christian life. 
en estos cinco capítulos vemos en resumen, vemos en breve las, los valores más importantes de la vida cristiana. And tonight we're going to be looking at chapter 13 primarily. Esta noche vamos a estar viendo el capítulo 13 uh, mayormente y luego el capítulo 14 eh, el próximo uh, miércoles. Next week we'll study uh, in chapter 14. But let's go to John chapter 13 and we're going to read a little bit of the first few verses and then skip down. Vamos a comenzar en el verso 1 y luego vamos a uh, bajar a otra porción de el capítulo. Are you in John? Ya encontraron a Juan. All right, Juan capítulo 13, el verso 1. Now before the feast of Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour had come, that he would be uh, departing from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given them all things into his hand, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, and he laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel which he, with which he was girded. Now go down to verse 34. Jesus is speaking here. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another, and by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for the opportunity you've given us to be in the house of prayer. We thank you that our prayers are answered. And we ask you tonight to anoint my lips of clay to teach the word of the living God. And I pray as well that you would anoint this congregation. Make us uh, receptive to your truth tonight and in the weeks to come. We ask this in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. Tonight I want to focus on uh, the part of the teaching of Jesus that is communicated here in chapter 13. Vamos a enfocarnos aquí en el uh, capítulo 13, but I want to paint the picture for you first. Vamos a uh, entender primero la escena. I used uh, for our graphic today, I asked them to put up the painting, uh, one of the uh, paintings of Jesus with his disciples at the Last Supper because uh, most of us have seen this. Your, your grandma might have had a picture of the Last Supper in her house, um, and uh, you, you're familiar with that. But not very many people know much more about it than that. Uh, so this scene, which is so famous and uh, which was uh, painted so many times by famous artists of ages gone by, uh, depicts the, the last hours that Jesus is going to spend on the earth. The next day... He's going to be crucified. And so he borrows a room in which to have this Passover meal. I want you to notice, first of all, that in uh, verse 1 it mentions the Passover. Because the Passover is a feast of Israel. And uh, if you don't know much about the Jewish tradition, the Jewish religion, 
They have seven major feasts that they celebrate every year. La tradición judía celebra uh, siete fiestas mayores cada año. Of the seven feasts, the men of Israel who were 21 and older were required to travel to Jerusalem three times a year in order to celebrate three feasts. Para los hombres en, en, uh, en Judea, uh, o los, los hombres en el judaísmo, los que tenían 21 años o mayor, se les requería atender a tres de las fiestas cada año. So they had to take a journey to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast three times a year. The first feast that they had to travel to go and celebrate was the feast of Passover. La primer uh, fiesta era la fiesta de la Pascua. Now you know this feast well if you've been attending on the last few Sunday mornings because we've been talking about the Exodus. And you remember that in the Exodus, the Lord told Moses to take a lamb, to take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost of the house. And, uh, and then he said, go into the house and roast the lamb till it's fully cooked. And then you're going to eat the lamb and you're going to eat it with unleavened bread. That means bread that doesn't have any yeast in it. That'll be flat bread. And you are going to celebrate the Passover. All right, so that night the angel of death came through Egypt and every house where the blood was applied to the door, he spared. Every house where blood was not applied to the door, the firstborn in that house died, whether it was a, a, a man or whether it was a beast. And so Israel was saved in the Exodus by the blood of the lamb that was uh, uh, put on the doorpost of the house and by their uh, commitment to stay in the house during this period of judgment. So from that moment on, God told Moses, you're going to observe this feast every single year. Every year you're going to have a Passover meal. You're going to roast the lamb. You're going to eat unleavened bread. And you're going to um, participate in the drinking of the wine. And all of these things become symbols to Israel of what God had done way back in, ex, in the Exodus, way back in Egypt. La Pascua representaba o significaba el éxodo. Uh, representaba el momento cuando Israel fue salvado desde uh, Egipto a través de la sangre del cordero sobre la puesta, uh, puerta de la casa. Luego ellos entraron y comieron el cordero y luego ellos también uh, participaron de el pan sin levadura. Now, all of those things in the Passover point to Jesus. All right, Jesus is the lamb that, whose blood was shed. Hey, say amen, somebody. Uh, todo esto representa a Jesús. Jesús es el cordero que derramó su sangre. Uh, Jesus is also the lamb that was roasted uh, and that was, that you and I eat or that the Jews would eat at Passover. Jesus said on one occasion, if you do not eat my flesh, you have no part in me. Now, he wasn't talking about cannibalism. He was explaining to us that if we were going to have any share in him, we were going to have to accept all of him, not just the part of him that we liked. When God gave them the Passover lamb to eat, he said, don't boil it, don't cook it, don't eat it raw. You uh, roast it thoroughly, and you eat the whole lamb. And if, it's, if one lamb's too much, then you need to get another family to share it with. But God wanted the whole lamb consumed. 
because he wants all of Christ to be received. You can't pick and choose what kind of, or part of Christ you want to take. But he wants the whole lamb. He wants the whole, uh, the, the whole lamb to be consumed. And he said, don't boil it and don't water it down. Don't, uh, don't make it less than it is. And he says, don't eat it raw. Don't, uh, don't, don't take any of the sufferings of Christ out of his Passover. So all of that is representing Christ. Then the, the, the unleavened bread represents Christ because in the Bible, yeast represents sin. And so unleavened bread represents a life without sin. Well, guess what? There's only one life that ever lived without sin, and that was Jesus. Ahora, el cordero representaba a Jesús, pero también el pan sin levadura, porque la levadura representa el pecado. Entonces, ellos comieron pan sin levadura, porque ese pan representaba a Cristo, quien era el pan sin levadura, el hombre sin pecado. Now, uh, remember that when Jesus gave them the elements of the new covenant, he gave them bread and wine. What did he say about the bread? He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Él les dijo, este es mi cuerpo, uh, que es partido por ustedes. So, you, you take the Exodus and you fast forward thousands of years, uh, or hundreds of years at least, into the time of Christ. And now you have Jesus sitting at a table on the evening of the Passover with his disciples. And what are they eating? They are eating the Passover meal. They are taking part in the celebration of the Passover feast. But the fact is that Jesus is now going to become the Passover. Jesus is going to become the lamb that Moses typified by uh, slaying in Exodus. Ahora ellos están sentados a la mesa miles de años después del éxodo y están celebrando la fiesta de la Pascua, pero ahora Cristo es el Cordero, Él es la Pascua, y ellos están para recibir la inauguración de un nuevo pacto. They're about to receive the inauguration of a whole new system of thinking, a whole new way of life, no longer through law and ritual and temples and lambs and goats and turtle doves, but they're going to find out that all of that is in Christ. Now they're sitting at the table with Jesus. They're sitting at the table with the lamb. They're sitting at the table with the unleavened bread. They're sitting at the table with the temple. They're sitting at the table with the fulfillment of every Old Testament prophecy. They're sitting at the table with the Messiah. Come on, somebody. Uh, you can imagine how exciting that would be. Now, they didn't know that entirely. You and I look back at them. Now we can look at that picture and say, these guys didn't even know what they were experiencing. But Jesus uh, now in chapter 13 has them all sitting at the table. Jesús los tiene ahí sentados en la mesa y él comienza a enseñar. He starts to teach them. And what does he think about, what does he teach them uh, when he comes to explaining what are the most essential things about being a Christian? Cuando Jesús comienza a enseñar qué es lo más esencial, lo más importante de ser un cristiano. He says to them, in uh, chapter 13 and in verse 
34, which I read. He says, a new commandment I give to you. Les dice, un nuevo mandamiento les doy. Now, when he says that, I want you to think about all the commandments and all the laws that have been given before this. 300, pardon, 613 commandments are in the Old Testament law. Hay 613 mandamientos en el Antiguo Testamento en la ley. Pero ahora el Señor dice, les voy a dar un nuevo mandamiento. He says, I'm giving you a new commandment. What is this new commandment? ¿Qué es este nuevo mandamiento? He says that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Everyone say, love one another. El mandamiento nuevo es esto. Amense uno al otro. Now this is uh, significant. First of all, I want you to notice that it's a commandment. Say commandment. Commandments are not suggestions. Jesus did not say, I have a new suggestion. I have a word of advice. He says, this is a commandment. Say commandment. So the Christian life, guys, is a life lived under authority. La vida cristiana es una vida vivida bajo autoridad. Él dice, les doy un nuevo mandamiento, no sugerencia. Esto es un mandamiento. Los mandamientos los llevan a cabo los que están bajo autoridad. Uh, commandments are carried out by people who are under authority. How many of you are under authority? So if you're under the authority of Jesus, this is his commandment to you. These are his orders, the marching orders. Estas son las órdenes de marcha para cada cristiano that you love one another. Now, I want to uh, unpack this a little bit because in the, in the Greek, there are four words for love. En el, uh, el idioma griego hay cuatro palabras para la palabra amor. We use love for the same thing, even though we mean different things. Have you noticed? You said to your wife, I love you. And then you said, I love hot dogs. So you have a same word, different meaning, I hope. <laughs> right? Usamos la palabra amor en el inglés y español, pero hay muchos definidos para ella. Uh, in the Greek, there are four meanings, and the reason I'm mentioning that is because the New Testament was written in Greek. And in the New Testament, three of the four meanings are mentioned. En el Nuevo Testamento se mencionan tres de las cuatro formas de amor. But these are all important for us to understand. One of them is the word uh, or the, the kind of love which we would call storge. Uh, la palabra amor, una de las palabras amor es storge. This is S-T-O-R-G-E. And uh, storge love is the most natural, uh, uh, the, the basic level of love. Storge es el amor más natural y más básico. It is uh, love based on something's nature. Es amor basado en la naturaleza de algo. So when you say, I love hot dogs, you're saying, I store gay hot dogs. Si usted dice, a, a mí me encantan las enchiladas. Yo amo las tortillas. Usted está diciendo, store gay. Tengo, tengo un amor store una, una amor, amor natural. It's a natural love. And it's the kind of love that human beings feel, not just to other human beings, but toward houses, cars, dogs, cats. You, know, you guys love your pets, right? 
you love your house, yeah? Uh, you, love, you love that shirt, right? You love those shoes. This is what storge is, the very most basic level. Es el nivel más básico. And just for the sake of your study later, it's mentioned in Romans chapter 1, verse 31, just so you can have a reference to it. Now, there's another form of love that we read about in the Greek, and that is eros. Luego está el amor eros. That's E-R-O-S, eros. And this is a love of passion and uh, generally considered as erotic love or sexual love. Este es el amor de pasión, un amor de, uh, un amor, uh, ro de romanticismo sexual. And eros is primarily self-motivated or it's motivated by its own desires. El eros es un amor motivado por la satisfacción de sí mismo. It is self-satisfying love. So sometimes uh, you will find that eros is very abusive. El amor eros es abusivo, not always, but many times uh, when it is outside of God's control, eros becomes about satisfying my desires and uh, about what I want. And, and when you live by eros, you live for yourself. El amor eros es un amor que vive para sí mismo. Y uh, en sí es abusivo. Porque es un amor que no ama a la criatura, no ama a la persona, si ama, sino ama lo que la persona puede darme. This kind of love does not love people. It loves what that person can give me that satisfies me. All right, you understand that? This kind of love is not mentioned in the Bible. Now that ought to tell you a whole lot right there. Este amor no se menciona en la Biblia. It's not mentioned in the New Testament or in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So God doesn't really operate through arrows. All right, now the third kind I'll mention to you tonight is uh, phileo, filio. This is P-H-I-L-E-O. Uh, el otro amor es el, alol, el amor filio o fileo. Filio or uh, filio or fileo love is a love of companionship. This is friendship. Uh, este amor es el amor de amistad, el amor de compañerismo. Uh, you'll recognize the word fil, fil, fileo or filio in the word Philadelphia. Ever heard of Philadelphia? What's Philadelphia's nickname? City, city of brotherly love. Why? Because phileo, Delphia. It's brotherly love, friendship love. That's the, the reason they have that name. Not because they're very loving. I hope they are. But uh, it's, it's not because of the people. It's because of the name. So uh, we, we actually read the word Philadelphia in the, in the New Testament. But this is a friendship love. Este es un amor de uh, amistad. And it's the kind of love that uh, all of us need. Este es un amor que todos necesitamos. How many of you need good friends? How many of you love your friends? Yeah, that's phileo that you are experiencing. Cuando usted ama un amigo uh, o, o tiene un deseo para proteger una amistad, ese es el amor filio, el cual estamos viendo operando ahí. We see this in John, uh, pardon me, in Matthew chapter 6 verse 5 and in John chapter 5 Verse 20, several other references there, but I'm just going to summarize for us today. 
So this is, a, this is a, a, an important love, but it's not the highest degree of love. Este es un amor importante, pero no es el amor más uh, importante. The, the, the love that Jesus uses right here in John 13, 34, is the fourth kind of love. El amor que Jesús usa aquí en Juan uh, 13, 34, es el amor Number four is el agape. This is agape love. That is a g a p e. I was looking at it in Greek all of a sudden. Sorry, put it in Greek in my notes. A g a p e, agape love. This is the noblest form of love. El agape es el amor más noble because agape love is unconditional. Love. El amor agape es amor incondicional. What does that mean, unconditional love? It means that I don't love you because you did something or because you do something or because you satisfy something in me. It means I love you just because. Ese amor es un amor el cual dice no te amo uh, porque me has hecho algo o porque me conviene o que me, me satisface si no te amo porque me has dado uh, porque simplemente porque te amo tengo afecto hacia ti and this type of love is mentioned many times in the scripture este, esta forma de amor es mencionado mucho en la escritura it's mentioned in John 3.16 what does that say? for God so Love, God so agape the world. God loved you unconditionally. Juan 3.16 nos dice que Dios nos amó. Y esa palabra es agape. Dios agape al mundo. Nos amó incondicionalmente. And you realize then that this is the God kind of love. Este es el amor uh, de Dios. Este tipo de amor es el amor de Dios. We find it. In many parts of scripture, uh, Romans 5, 5 uh, mentions as well as Ephesians 3, 17. When Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, he says, love one another. He says, love one another unconditionally. Now, this is where the rubber meets the road. Because what Jesus is telling us is that Christians love one another. They don't just love Christians, but they love all people unconditionally. Now, there's an important thing that we need to realize. This is God's kind of love. That means you can't love someone unconditionally unless God gives you the power to do that. Somebody say amen. amen. Usted no puede amar a alguien incondicionalmente sin que Dios le dé el poder para hacerlo. Now, this is very important because chapter 13 is teaching us about love. But Jesus mentions love twice. And yet, when we don't, ref we don't hear it referenced anymore in the chapter, but the whole chapter is teaching us about love because the rest of the chapter is Jesus' actions. And his actions reveal his love. So we see Jesus revealing unconditional love to us. First of all, 
in chapter 13, verse 5, we read that Jesus, while he was sitting at the table, he is, um, he is having a Passover meal with his, with his disciples. He is the Passover. He is the Lamb. He is the, the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He is the fulfillment of Old Testament types. He is the Son of God. He is the one that John said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing has come into being. That has come into being in Him was the life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. That's who Jesus is. But then we read verse 5, and it says that Jesus took off His outer garment, put on an apron, got on his on the floor and began to wash the feet of the disciples. And now we begin to see love in action. Here's the first thing we need to understand about love is that love serves. Love gives. El amor sirve. El amor da. El amor que no sirve no sirve. If your love doesn't serve, it's not worth much. Because love gives. We saw it in John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave. When you see a young couple fall in love, what do they start doing? Start giving each other gifts, right? Like, my God didn't give me no gifts. Did your God give you some gifts? Flowers? Come on, guys, step it up. You're letting me down over here. <laughs> Did your girl give you some gifts? Yes? Y'all trying to, trying to repress bad memories, it seems like. Why? Because love gives. Love exchanges. I, I remember my mom had uh, boxes full of cards that my dad would give her. And my dad was illiterate, so... <laughs> Some of the cards were not, they weren't for my mom. They're like, happy birthday to my aunt or something like that. But it was his love. Right? And she kept those things because they were an expression of love. Love gives. Love serves. Jesus served the disciples. He said, I didn't come to, to be served, but I came to serve. See, so... Whenever you want to know what is a Christian, how does a Christian look, how does a Christian act, what does a Christian do, you shouldn't think about uh, suits and ties and press shirts and uh, big words and fancy prayers. You should think about a person who loves generously, who gives generously, a person who serves uh, out of the out of the fullness of the love which they have received. What does Jesus say? ¿Qué dice Jesús ahí? Dice, amense uno al otro así como yo les he He says, love one another as I have loved you. Él dice, amense uno al otro como yo les he amado. Él se pone como el ejemplo. He makes himself the example of the kind of love that you and I should give to one another. Why is Jesus talking about this right now? 
Because in a few hours, he's going to be in, on the cross. He's going to be uh, dead in a few hours. And the disciples in a few days won't have Jesus to get around there to help them make up and hug each other when they're frustrated with one another. He won't have, they won't have Jesus there to make them repent and forgive one another and to be, to be their reconciler. They're going to need to learn how to love one another. Now, the other important factor here in chapter 13 is this, that Jesus says, this new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. He says that in verse 34. Look at verse 27. Well, look at verse 26. Uh, mira el verso 26. 26. Jesus then answered that one of you who will dip the morsel and give it, uh, and I give it to him, so that when he dips the morsel and he took the, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, after the morsel, Satan entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. And no one at the table reclining knew for what purpose he had said this. Now, Jesus, in, uh, in the verses I just read, is identifying Judas as the betrayer. And let me ask you this. Have you ever been at, at a dinner with somebody that you had friction with? What happens? No eye contact. It's quiet. Awkward. Pass the salt. Imagine you're at the table with the guy that's selling you out. Now the rubber's meeting the road. This is the guy that's going to go and betray Jesus. And in the few verses before, Jesus says, one of you is the devil. And it's funny because all the disciples say, is it me, Lord? <laughs> Isn't it funny? We all have a little devil in us. We're just like, could it be me? I hope it's not me. I didn't think that was so obvious. And, and then Jesus said, the one that I dipped the bread in the bowl with, that's the devil. That's the one who's going to betray me. Do you hear Jesus in any way in chapter 13 being awkward or silent or abusive or harsh? Instead, he just washed his feet. And then, that's, that's, the, that's before verse 34. In verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. And Peter said, Lord, why can't I follow you now? Uh, I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered and said, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow three times before you deny me. Now, before he said, love, your, love one another, he knew Judas was going to betray him. And then after he said, love one another, 
he identified that Peter was going to fail him. Peter, before the, the rooster crows three times tonight, you're going to deny me three times. Before the rooster crows once, you're going to deny me three times. So you have this sandwich. On the top, you have the betray bread, and on the bottom, you have the failure bread. And in the middle, Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. Now, I don't know which of these hurt more, but I have to imagine that Peter hurt more. Because if you read chapter 13, Jesus actually said, I didn't choose Judas. He said, I know the ones that I have chosen. I'm not talking to all of you. He said, I know the ones I've chosen because one of you is the devil. I didn't choose him. The rest of you I chose. Peter, he chose. And Peter, he was the leader of the disciples. This is the top dog. When Peter got mad, they all got mad. But Peter was happy, they were all happy. Peter was the, the man at the center of the inner circle of Jesus. Every major event in the Gospels includes Peter. Peter walked on water. Right? You remember that? Peter caught a fish with money in its mouth. We need more of those fish. Uh, Peter, Peter saw dead, the dead girl raised from the dead. Peter saw the most incredible miracles of Jesus. And, and right here, Jesus is telling me, Peter, before the sun rises tomorrow morning, you're going to let me down. And Peter isn't just going to let him down. He's going, to he's going to deny that he even knows Jesus. You remember that uh, when Jesus was arrested, some of the people around there watching this, this uh, episode, they looked at Peter and they said, hey, aren't you one of the ones that was with him? And he said, I've never seen him in my life. I don't know him. And they asked him again. He said, no, I don't know him. The third time he started cussing. I told you I don't know him. Don't worry, I'm not going to cuss. <laughs> and Jesus knew all of this. And yet he says, this is the defining value of Christianity. Love one another. So love serves, but we also see there that love is proof of discipleship. El amor sirve, pero el amor también es la prueba del discipulado. Because he says, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's verse 35. El verso 35, el Señor dice ahí, Por esto sabrán los hombres que ustedes son mis discípulos porque se aman uno al otro. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, you want to prove that you love me and that you follow me? If you want to prove that you're my disciple, I don't need you to wear a Christian t-shirt. I don't need you to put a fish on your car. I don't need you to wear a Christian ball cap. Those are all wonderful things. But those aren't the proofs of discipleship. The proof of discipleship is that you love people unconditionally. That you love your Judases. Nobody said amen that time. <laughs> la prueba del amor, la prueba del discipulado, es el amor incondicional. Y Jesús dijo, esta va a ser la prueba, 
no una playera cristiana o un bumper sticker cristiano, sino el amor va a ser la prueba de que ustedes son míos, de que yo estoy viviendo dentro de ustedes y que usted pueda amar a su Judas y amar a Pedro, to be able to love your Judas and to be able to love Peter, to be able to love the the people that you loved and failed you or who let you down. Poder amar a las personas que usted amó y le han fallado. And you, you'll see that in Jesus, we see a love that overlooks wrongs being done. El amor de Jesús es un amor que ve más allá que el daño que me hicieron. It overlooks the fault. El amor de Dios en uno, el amor agape, ve más allá que las fallas de uno. You see, if you, if you can only love someone up until their faults, you're really not walking in God's love. It's, it's what makes marriages work. It's what makes churches work. It's what makes friendships last when you can love people beyond their faults. I know your faults, but I love you anyway. I love you beyond those faults. I'm looking beyond that. Right here, I'm seeing that you denied me three times. But over there, I'm seeing that on the day of Pentecost, you're going to rise up and preach my name to the Jews, and 3,000 people are going to get saved. I'm loving you past your failures, loving you past where you let me down. And that's the kind of love that only God can put in our hearts. Listen, church, that's the kind of love God wants to give you, a love that looks past other people's faults. Listen, um, if you want to have success in any kind of relationship, it's going to have to be through that kind of love. It says, you know what? Your feet stink, but I love you anyway. <laughs> you know, people have got divorced over stuff like that. And yet, when you read what Paul says in, in, uh, to the Corinthians, he says that there are three things that remain. What are they? Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Why? Because God is love. I said God is love. When you love other people, you're loving God. Cuando usted ama a otra persona, usted ama a Dios. This is what the Lord said. He said, why do you say that you love me, but you hate your neighbor? If you hate your neighbor, you don't even know me because I am love. And when I look around and I see people love people who've hurt them, people who've abused them, people who've broken their heart, people who have let them down, people who have betrayed them, when I, when I see uh, people who love beyond human ability, we're seeing the presence of God in that person's life. We're seeing the presence of God in that uh, activated and active in that person's life uh, when, uh, uh, when we see a tragedy take place. And instead of accusations toward the person who caused the tragedy, to hear, uh, as I have, a parent say, I forgive them, I love them. 
And I want to see them saved. I want to see them born again. God is getting incredible glory out of that because only God could do that in a person's life. Only God can give you that kind of love. Now, when we see Jesus at work here, he's telling us, this is what I want your life to look like. This is what I want your life to be like. I want you to live a life of love, a life of devotion. Let me give you a few other thoughts here, and then I'll sum this up. When you love, you're not only loving God, you're also fulfilling God's commandments. Love is obedience to God. I've heard people say, I have to love you, but I don't have to like you. They're going by the letter of the law. They're getting right down to the edge. But love is obedience to God. If I love you, I'm, I'm obeying God. Also, love, the Bible says, is the goal of all instruction. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, it says, The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Why am I teaching you tonight? I am teaching you the Bible tonight so that, number one, uh, I'm teaching you the Bible tonight because I love you. I want you to grow. I want you to become all that God has called you to be. And my love for you moves me to preach and teach the word of God to you. But the goal of that teaching is for you to leave here and love other people. And the presence of the word of God produces love. If that person is walking by the, by the spirit of God, the presence of God in their life, love's going to be the natural reaction to that. And then we also see that love is what melts away cold Hatred. Es el amor el cual puede derritir el, uh, el odio frío. In, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 9, Jesus warned us saying that in the last days, the love of many people would grow cold. Jesús nos advierte en San Mateo capítulo uh, 24, verso 9 al 12, que en los últimos tiempos el amor de muchos se va a resfriar. If you, if you don't cultivate a love life, your life's going to become cold. Your heart will become cold. You know, a lot of people don't love because they're afraid of being hurt. They're afraid of being wounded, so they keep their love. But you see, when you do that, you end up becoming cold, and you end up becoming dead. It's love that keeps you alive. That's why you need to learn to forgive. That's why you need to learn to overlook things. That's why you need to learn to look past people's failures. Because it's what brings warmth into your heart as a man or woman in this world. There's going to be an increasing loss of love in our culture. An increasing loss of love in the world toward the end times. The church has to be mindful of that and keep its love life going. Finally, the Bible says that faith works through love. Finalmente, la palabra del Señor dice que la fe opera 
a través del amor. We read that in the book of Galatians. When you and I, when you and I have a, a sense of God's love, we have a faith toward God. But when we have a sense that God doesn't love us, there's no faith toward God. A person that doesn't know God's love does not have the faith to believe God. Why would a God who hates me answer my prayers? I have no faith toward that kind of God. But when I know that God loves me, I ask him for anything. I know he can do it. I know he can provide. I know that he will do it. And so my challenge to you tonight is ask God to reveal his love to you. To show you that kind of love that inspires faith in you. Faith to believe him, to trust him, to accept and expect great things from him. I want to sum this up tonight because I think this is very uh, significant. If you look at chapter 13, verse 1, it says that Jesus knew that his hour had come. And then in chapter 13, verse 3, it says that Jesus knew that all things, that's authority, had been given into his hands. And then in chapter 11, apart in chapter 13, verse 11, it says that Jesus knew who would betray him. On the night of the Passover, Jesus had three things in mind. Number one, he knew my time is up. Number two, he knew that he was going, that he had all the authority that he needed to carry out the will of God. And number three, he knew that Judas was going to betray him. He was not being blindsided by this. But when you read verse 27, it says that after the morsel, Satan entered into Judas, and Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now what is Jesus doing? He's actually giving Judas the instruction to go do what you have planned. He's actually in command of Judas. Why do I want to close with that tonight? Because many times you think that your devil is just running rampant in your life and that you have no power or authority over him. And right here we see that Jesus is the one that has authority over Judas. Judas can't betray Jesus until Jesus gives him the authority to do so. So what do I want you to know tonight? God's in control. Did you hear that? God's in control. Judas is not in control. Peter's not in control. Your circumstances are not in control. The devil's not in control. God is in control. We read, Jesus knew, Jesus knew, Jesus knew. Guess what? Jesus knows tonight. Jesus knows exactly where you are, exactly what you're going through, exactly what you need. He's in control. And he's the one who will say, go or stay or move or don't move. It's in his hands. All authority, all power belongs to him. And when you know that, you can love people. Because you realize, you may have hurt me, but God's in control. You may have let me down, but God's in control. You may have failed that promise you made to me, but God's in control. And as long as God is in control, my life is going to be all right. 
I'm going to arrive on time and on schedule in God's purpose in my life. Let's stand together. Hallelujah. Let's just acknowledge God's control, God's sovereign rule over our lives. Right where you are, just lift your hands. Just tell him, Lord, I trust you. I trust that you're in control. That you are leading me. That you are guiding me. I put my trust in you tonight. Come on, just talk to the Lord out of your heart. Out of your inner man, out of your spirit. Just speak to the Lord. Just tell him, Lord, I trust you. And ask him tonight to give you the God kind of love. Ask him to, to give you the love that he has so that you can love yourself the way God loves you. So that you can love your husband and your wife the way God loves. So that you can love your children the way God loves. That might involve some forgiveness. It might involve having to let some things go. It might involve having to let somebody off the hook from hurting you. But you're going to have to say, God, I don't want to carry that around anymore in my life. I want to be free from all of that. I want to love the way you love because you love me. I'm your disciple. I'm your follower. I trust you. There might be a Judas in my life. There might be a Peter in my life. There might be a devil in my life. But I trust you. They won't be able to do anything to me that you have not allowed for my growth. That you not allowed for my benefit. Everything they did to me will be so that I can step up and become the man that you have designed me to be. Or the woman that you have designed me to be. I'm going to walk by faith. I'm going to walk in confidence toward God. My boss is not in control. My company is not in control. The economy is not in control. President Trump's not in control. God, you're in control. And because you're in control, because you're on the throne, I will have joy in my life. I will have peace in my life. I will have hope in my life. I won't live in sorrow. I won't live in regret. I won't live in fear. I won't live in anxiety. I won't live in worry. I'm going to live in peace. Peace with God. Peace toward my past. Peace toward my future. Peace toward today. Peace in my body. Peace in my health. Peace in my mind. Hallelujah. Because God is in control. Somebody bless the Lord on his throne. Glorify the God of glory.